Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. All right. Well, first off, I want to welcome our listeners to the new year, 2022. It's great to be back with you after our little break here this past month, following our very successful convention and, of course, the holidays. We are looking forward to releasing a number of new episodes back on our regular schedule. So appreciate your support and uh, look forward to having uh, many new guests on here in the coming months. Our first guest of the new year, though, I'm very pleased to have Colonel Christopher Fernangle, who is currently assigned as Commander Space Delta Three. Space Operations Command at Peterson Space Force Base in Colorado. He commands the Space Electromagnetic Warfare Delta with personnel deployed worldwide. Space Delta III is responsible for preparing and presenting assigned and attached forces for the purpose of executing electromagnetic warfare. And the units under his command within Space Delta III are the 4th, the 5th, and the 16th Space Control Squadrons and the 721st Operations Support Squadron. So, Colonel Fernangel, it's great to have you on From the Crow's Nest. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. All right, well, let's dive right in. Um, So, we were talking a little bit before the show started, you know, trying to get a little bit more familiarity uh, for for myself as well as our listeners about how Space Force is organized. Uh, So, Space Delta III executes space electromagnetic warfare through sustainable operations to dominate the space domain. That's a very broad statement. So, I wanted to start out and kind of learn a little bit more about how the Space Force and Space Delta III uh, are organized and, and what is your specific mission on a day-to-day basis? Great. Thanks for the opportunity. I, I want to start off by just saying that, as you probably saw, we just celebrated our second anniversary just a few days ago, and it's, it's really an exciting and a historic time for our new service. The U.S. Space Force provides forces to protect in, uh, the interests of the United States in space, deter aggression in, from, and to space, and conducts space operations. So that's a lot of word. But basically, from a service perspective, we organize, train, and equip agile, lean, and mission-focused space operations to defend our nation's allies and American interests. So how we're organized, I'll I'll start there, if that's okay. The Space Force Service is comprised of three field commands. You've got Space Operations Command, Space Systems Command, and Space Training and Readiness Command, or STARCOM. And it's the direction that all these commands and the subordinate units, including Delta III, or Space Delta III, are going to be light, lean, and agile. And as our Chief of Space Operations, General Raymond, has directed, it will also be fundamentally a digital service. So what's the vision for this this organization? It's it's really to build and sustain a mission-centric environment where our O6 commanders are focused on their mission areas. So the space deltas are going to be focused on space capability missions, whereas the garrison commanders in other services, they're usually called installation commanders, are focused on base operating support. As we begin to forge our unique path as a new service, especially at the operational level, 
We want to shred any unwanted bureaucracy to narrow the gap between strategic and tactical levels. Agility is, is fundamental to our new service. So I wanted I wanted to pull on that a little bit because I mean we we hear a lot of these terms you know agile and lean and and it, it's it's a theme that runs through a lot of the services but for the space force you're, you you just said you know second year anniversary so things have been moving really quickly for the new service but you get to start from the ground up could you talk a little bit about some of the unique challenges of becoming this vision that you've d- talked about from the ground up over the last year to to become more agile and what are some of the specific examples you might have that really kind of help the listeners understand what that means for Space Force compared to other services? Yeah, that's a good question. So we recently came out with our initial service doctrine called the Space Capstone publication. And that really outlines kind of the the vision of where the Space Force is going to provide as a service those capabilities on behalf of national security. And those cornerstone responsibilities are really important because they drive the vision for where we're going. And those are preserve uh, freedom of action, enable joint lethality and effectiveness, and provide independent options. So as a service, as we're looking forward to agility and empowerment to make sure that we outpace our adversary or act within their OODA loop or decision calculus or operational kill chain, however you want to look at it, as we set up the service to remove some of those bureaucracies, what you're seeing is decision levels being delegated down to commanders where we haven't seen those before. So really those 04, 05 uh, commanders, 06 delegation, where previously those were held at the general officer level. So with those layers of bureaucracy, what we're seeing is a much faster decision process for the U.S. Space Force especially as it relates to operational tactical level operations. And, and so w- one of the topics that we talked a, quite a bit about at the convention back in November, when we talked space operations, there seems to be a very natural marriage between space ops and MSO um, in that, you know, when you're looking at current threats in the future fight, you really can't, pr- you can't plan to be successful in any operation unless you have superiority or dominance or whatever word you want in space and the electromagnetic spectrum. And the two go hand in hand. Um, You really can't have space superiority without electromagnetic spectrum and vice versa. And if you don't have either, you're not going to have success in any of the other warfighting domains. And I was wondering if you could, you know, kind of talk a little bit about that from a Space Force perspective. You know, many of our listeners here are in the electromagnetic spectrum operations, and we've long talked about how really there's a natural alignment between space and our, and, and our community and, and how the two have to work together uh, on an operational and tactical level to really ensure that our joint forces are able to succeed in, in, in the future fight. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You, you stole many of the words I was going to say, actually. <laughs> it's, it's so entangled. And so my perspective is people get in arguments about, is the EMS a domain? Is it not? My viewpoint is it's a battlefield that transcends all domains and not only the the space force, but the dependencies and the interwovenness between EMS operations and space operations cannot be understated. Most of the operations between the ground, terrestrial, and spacecraft is done through the EMS. Electromagnetic warfare, uh, either attack, support, or protection is, is conducted through the EMS And so if you don't have EMS 
dominance, I find it hard to believe that you're never you're ever going to get space superiority. They're just so linked. And if you don't look through that lens of the dependencies, vulnerabilities, and shore up and protect that battlefield and dominate that battlefield, you're not going to be able to effectively operate space operations. And so that's where I would say EMS dominance is absolutely critical to gaining and maintaining space superiority. And, and I think it's really interesting because when you, when you look at where the threat is going, or not even just the threat, just technology in general, you know, when you, when you look at just society and how we use technology and, and uh, the, evolution, the rapid evolution of it, I find it you know, interesting and, and actually a very positive development that you know, the Space Force is really interested in pursuing driving decision-making down to, at the operational level, down, down through the ranks to get, kind of get rid of the bureaucracy because you have to be able to make decisions fast in today's environment. And, you know, I think it, it, it speaks highly to this, this service to have that type of vision going in, but it's also very representative of where we're at from a, from a military technology standpoint. Like you, you cannot maintain the levels of bureaucracy that we have in DOD and expect to have success in the decision-making arena because there's just so much going on in increasingly shorter periods of time. So do you see the Space Force kind of leading the way in this area in kind of a, a new way of thinking about how we drive down decision-making building almost to, uh, I, I've used the term democratizing it, so to speak, uh, getting that de- decision-making out there so that we can just keep up with the pace of technology. I would say this: the Space Force is a pathfinder. On your note about just driving decisions down to the lowest level to get that agility and that speed, I would say that that's a great first step. But as we look at technology and the industry base, specifically the U.S. industry base supporting the U.S. government and the U.S. military, I think many would argue, including myself, that it's important to not just concentrate on that human, that we look at opportunities between machine learning, artificial intelligence, and autonomy, where some of those decisions may no longer be a human in the loop. It may be a human on the loop just checking the the work, so to speak, of that machine learning program. Because especially in EMS operations, when a human becomes overwhelmed or saturated by targets and trying to be spectrally aware and engage targets, it becomes a game of whack-a-mole in some instances. And last I, I saw, most humans only have two hands. So when you're dealing with hundreds or thousands of target signals, potentially, we need to get smarter. And I think the Space Force is really leading the way as a pathfinder to drive towards not only empowering our people at the lowest level, but really investing and doubling down on artificial intelligence, machine learning, and autonomy. And that's an important point about Space Force. I like the term that you used, uh, Space Force being a pathfinder, uh, you know, empowering people, but also embracing evolution of technology. I think it's critical that the services, all the services, and it's clear the Space Force is too, um, understanding how quickly every warfighter can become saturated in today's EMS environment. So keeping with that, technology is, of course, leading each service to change the way they think about how to employ innovation at every level. Uh, can you elaborate on on how the Space Force or Space Delta Three is addressing some of these evolving technology challenges? 
The first thing I'd like to just address is within the space deltas, many of these small, the best way to think of it, in my opinion, is a very small army brigade. People try to make the comparison between an Air Force group or an Air Force wing. That usually leads you astray very quickly because it's a lot of authorities and responsibilities similar to wing command. The bottom line, it's an 06 command and it's more akin to a small army brigade. Well, Regardless, within these our space deltas, we have these organizations, small teams called combat development teams. And these are really our innovation teams. They're going out, they're interacting with industry partners, and they're really trying to figure out disruptive technology. They're doing discovery learning. They're bringing that back to integrate and show some of our operators and see if there's military utility or how it could be maybe modified to provide our specific space delta, that military utility. And then they're really either operationalizing or trying to weaponize it, either as a non-programmer record, but working with our field commands to develop the potentially into a programmer record with a sustainable um, tail, if you will. Our higher headquarters in the, in the space delta is the Space Operations Command. And they have these things called mission area teams, which are really focused on individual space deltas. And they're not only our advocate, but they're, in my opinion, they're uh, an extension of our space delta staff that really works on our behalf under the guidance of Lieutenant General Whiting. So as we figure out these disruptive technologies and identify if there is military utility for the, the space deltas, they are able to create the sustainable product line for us to engage and operationalize that capability. Hello everyone, I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology and for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. 
As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. Could you uh, give us some insight into how Space Force Delta Three is working to improve train the training process as it relates to live virtual and constructive training environments? Absolutely. There's a lot of work being done there. The Space Training and Readiness Command is leading that effort. They're going out to the command commands and components, and they're, they're comparing and contrasting what capability we have to replicate those threats and execute operations with their operational units, such as the Space Deltas and the Tactical Squadrons. What they're driving to is developing the requirements and trying to build the range of the future across the live virtual and constructive environments. I would say that there's no one answer. It can't just be live fires. It also can't just be video games or looking at a spectrum analyzer. It's really taking a look at the holistic picture of what we need to do to build lethal EW operators. And so as we build this range of the future, it's important, one, that it's threat relevant, that it keeps up with the evolution of threats. The second is that it monitors what's going on in the environment and is able to provide that operator a contested, degraded, an operationally limited site picture that they have to fight through. And then third, which is really important to me as a, a former space aggressor, is that it has the ability to provide a thinking adversary input or machine learning artificial intelligence to really challenge that operator to fight through and be almost a sparring partner if you use a boxing analogy. So you mentioned EW professionals, and one of the things we always talk about, we've talked about for years, is really kind of understanding what, is, what makes up an EW professional, and it's different from each service, and, and, and the requirements and the train, both the training and education requirements uh, vary from service to service. So I was wondering, you know, when, when Guardians, you know, get, get to Delta, they, they have to go through training. From your perspective, what is the development of an EW professional in Delta Three? Yeah, and I will tell you, we are going through a major overhaul right now, not only at the Space Force level to develop and build your initial Guardian, but within STARCOM and within our Space Delta training to develop that EW operator. And so I'll kind of walk through it because it, it does transcend the different field commands. So you have uh, Space Training and Readiness Command, STARCOM, that's responsible for that initial guardian training. And that's after they go, if they're enlisted, that's after they go through Air Force basic training still. 
On the officer side, that's through potentially the Air Force Academy, ROTC, or OTS. We have also welcomed in some of our inter-service transfers from the Army and the Navy specifically. And they'll all, all those, those initial sessions will go out to Vandenberg for their initial undergraduate space training. Once they go through that training and graduate, they'll actually come back to Colorado Springs at Peterson Space Force Base, and most of them will go through another STARCOM training called the Space Warfighting Fall-On. That's where they start to get their initial guidance of what the discipline is they're going to, in our case, electromagnetic warfare. That's where I would say they start to become spectrally aware. They understand signals, they understand parameters, they understand frequencies, the basics, the, the true fundamentals of, of EW or spectrum awareness. From there, if they're coming to Space Delta Three, which is star charged with offensive and defensive EW, they'll be welcome into the Space Delta. That is where, from a methodology standpoint, we want to first develop them as electromagnetic warfare officer. So that's agnostic to weapon system, that's agnostic to offensive and defensive, and that's where we bring in just an understanding of the EMS, a general understanding of kinetic versus non-kinetic fires, and the fact that from a targeting perspective, it shouldn't matter if it's space, airborne, sea-based, terrestrial, cyber, EW capability, you need to make sure that your focus in, is integrating and synchronizing those all domain fires to meet the component or the command command targeting cycle. From there, we go to an offensive or defensive track. So we truly focus on either electromagnetic support, attack, or protection. And then that's kind of where they separate and they get certified in an individual weapon system, EW weapon system. So kind of from the, the top down to the bottom, it's, it's a different methodology than the Air Force had before. So I would argue, and you've probably heard it, if you were an Air Force captain that flew a, an F-16 and you were, you were walking with that person and someone came up and said, hey, what do you do? I'm a Viper pilot. In this case, um, there's probably two levels. When I look at the vision of what I would hope one of our guardians answer, it's I'm an EW professional or I'm a guardian of, rather than I'm certified on this specific weapon system. It's important to note that we also have airmen within our rank and file of Space Delta Three, And so for their training, while they don't go out to Vandenberg Space Force Base for that undergraduate space training, when they come to Space Delta Three, either assigned or attached, we still build them as EW professionals. And how we do that is through that initial basic combat course. So they understand how to integrate and synchronize fires. They understand EW principles and foundations. And some of those folks, whether they be mission support or cyberspace folks, will not actually get certified on a weapon system, but they still get that EW focus and are considered EW professionals. So we're looking forward, you know, new year here, 2022, I, I can pretty much guess that we're going to have guests from the Space Force on 
throughout the year. So where do you see some of the education tracks going? What are some of the things that are exciting to you in terms of where this training of the new generation of EW professionals in the Space Force is going over the next year? What I'm most excited about is the integration with other EW professionals as other services build EW capabilities. As we send our folks out from the Space EW community and integrate with other services, and even within the same services, whether that be sea, air, land, or cyber delivered EW capabilities. The other thing I'm really excited about is the integration with industry partners and building that relationship. Specifically within Space Delta Three, I think one of the most interesting and exciting things we're starting to build is our relationship with the Spectrum Warfare Wing. So as you know, they're the Department of the Air Force lead agency for EW reprogramming. I will say that we need to build that relationship and I look for opportunities to not only build that those touch points with them, but also potentially even set up exchange officers and liaison officers at our two distinct locations. But that's what I'm really excited about. I'll also say that as we continue and grow our partnership with our Total Force partners, both the Air National Guard and Air Force Reserves have been just critical mission partners for both capability and capacity. And I'll tell you that we are deliberately and making it a focus item for the next year to make sure we're collaborating on operations, activities, and investments. And some of those operations are deployments, and some of those activities is really building out what the training schedule looks like, what the testing schedule looks like as we bring on new capabilities, and also what the investment strategy is between the Space Force and both the Air Force Reserves and the Air National Guard. All right, so we, we have time for one more question. And you know, at the beginning at, uh, of the episode, you mentioned the, the space capstone uh, doctrine that was released, and, and there's you know basically the initial doctrine had three tenets: you know, preserving freedom of action, and enabling joint lethality and effectiveness, and uh, provide independent options. And I wanted to kind of get your perspective on moving forward. Obviously, in a constrictive budget environment, standing up a new new force is going to require a lot of partnerships with other services and other stakeholders. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how over the next year, Space Delta Three is going to continue to, uh, through partnerships, address each of these uh, capstone initiatives. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's fitting to say that electromagnetic warfare actually is one of the few disciplines that covers all three corner, cornerstone responsibilities outlined in our Space Capstone publication. The other thing it contributes to is just combat power projection, which is one of our service core competencies. I would say that as we go out from an integration and a partnership perspective, obviously one of the key partnerships that will remain is that relationship with the Air Force Reserves and Air National Guard. We cost share lines of deployments and employments uh, from CONUS, whether that be deploying to a faraway austere location or operating remotely from CONUS operations locations. We need to partner and continue to partner on some of those activities I talked about with testing, uh, training, and exercises. The note of of testing is really important to me because as we bring on new capabilities and the Air National Guard and the Air Force Reserve share 
uh, have units that operate the same weapon systems, it's really important to bring that diversity of thought and diversity of perspective and experience on those testing teams. So it's not just the Space Force unit that's doing the testing. We bring in those units from across the total force and they provide input for the next generation weapon system in, for, in the form of testing. And then as, he, as you mentioned, we're in, a, we're in a tough budget battle and resources are limited. So as we think through enterprise solutions, for instance, the Total Force has some funding called the National Guard and Reserve Equipment Appropriations, which is two-year funding, which gives you a little bit more flexibility than the Space Force five-year POM options. So as we look at building things and partnering on an EW lab that supports not only the Space Force, but the Air Force Reserves and the Air National Guard, building those EW professionals like we talked about, and then developing them further on. Great. Well, well thank you, Colonel Fernangle, uh, for joining me for uh, this uh, important discussion here to kick off 2022 and get a little bit more information on Space Force. Uh, thank you for joining me. My absolute pleasure. Thanks, Ken. All right, well, th that will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. To learn more about the Association of Old Crows and our podcast, please visit us on our website at crows.org. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs.